The reading today is from Joel 3. In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people. They traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine to drink. Now, what have you against me, Tyre and Sidon, and all you regions of Philistia? Are you repaying me for something I have done? If you are paying me back, I will swiftly and speedily return on your own heads what you have done. For you took my silver and my gold and carried off my finest treasures to your temples. You sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks that you might send them far from their homeland. See, I am going to rouse them out of the places to which you sold them and I will return on your own heads what you have done. I will sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, a nation far away. The Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weakling say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations from every side, and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy and never again will foreigners invade her. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. But Egypt will be desolate, Edom a desert waste because of violence done to the people of Judah in whose land they shed innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem through all generations. Shall I leave their innocent blood unavenged? No, I will not. The Lord dwells in Zion. 
Well, thank you so much, Samantha, for that wonderful reading. It's great to be with you this afternoon. Now, the problem with speaking third in a three-part series is that my two colleagues have set the bar very high. Unlike my mother-in-law, who, when talking to my wife one day about our son, spoke these unforgettable words. Gareth is a good boy. He's never killed anyone. <laughs> Perhaps a definition of a very low bar. Anyway, here we go. In my personal Bible readings, I like to make sure I include the Old Testament on a regular basis. Without that sweep of spiritual history, it's so much harder to understand the Gospel and where we are today and what a narrative it is. A snapshot of the creation, the heavens and the earth and the harmony between God and man that God always intended. How we rebelled and sin and death entered that perfect world. How God put in place a long-term redemption plan through Abraham and his successors, the children of Israel. How they ended up as slaves in Egypt. How through God sending Moses they were saved and taken into the land God had promised to Abraham hundreds of years earlier, the promised land. How they eventually entered, but very soon made a complete hash of it and constantly let God down. How they cried out for a king and God raised up Saul, then David, then Solomon, and then a succession of kings with unpronounceable names, the majority of which turned their backs on God and led the people astray. How God raised up great spiritual leaders like Samuel and Daniel and prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah who spoke of a Messiah to come. How the kingdom was divided into two and suffered at the hands of mighty foreign powers. The Old Testament pepper-potted with worship and wisdom literature. And then finally how God spoke to his people and to us through other prophets called the minor prophets reinforcing the message of judgment and repentance and a future saviour. God had set out a clear plan. His people consistently messed things up, but he kept on speaking and warning and prophesying. Which brings us to Joel chapter 3. Now, Claire and Alison have splendidly set the scene in the past two series, drawing out the meaning from chapters 1 and 2. The forthcoming day of the Lord, his blessings bigger than we can imagine, the good news of the gospel greater than we can possibly know. And I want to draw out three brief points from this final chapter of Joel. First, that there will be judgment on the whole world. Second, that there will be blessings on God's people. And finally, how we now know what Joel did not know, how God would do it. First then, judgment. Verse 2, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There's no such valley Jehoshaphat means the valley where God judges, where God judges. Verse 12, let the nations be roused, let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. I like saying that. Perhaps if we had another child, we'd call him Jehoshaphat. <laughs> For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Now, and I wonder what reaction do you have when you hear about the day of judgment? It might seem primitive to modern Western people to talk about a day of judgment. But this is a clear and important theme running all the way through scripture. Jesus spoke about judgment a lot and told many parables to help us prepare for it, to live in readiness. But sometimes we're tempted, aren't we, to pick and choose what we like about the Bible. We like the teachings of Jesus about kindness and loving your neighbour, 
We like to see him as an example, or as a great teacher. But he was a great teacher who claimed to be divine. And he spoke often, as we've seen, about heaven and hell, and about the forthcoming day of judgment. And we have to take these teachings seriously. Now, when I was at King's College London, doing a law degree in the late 1970s, looking around at some of you, you weren't born in the late 1970s, Looking around at some of you, your parents might not have been born in the late 1970s. But <laughs> well, we were encouraged to pop over the Strand and sit in on various court cases and get a feel of how our court system operated. And I used to particularly enjoy the criminal cases in the Old Bailey. And the most significant moment would be after all the arguments had been made and the jury had retired to consider their response, then the verdict came in. And it was always a moment of high drama. Have the jury reached a decision? We have, Your Honour. Did you find the accused guilty or not guilty? Guilty. But I'll tell you what never happened in all the cases that I witnessed. I never saw the jury render a guilty plea and then the judge put the old black cap on his head, actually I'm not quite that old, and give the sentence in this way. The accused has been found guilty. The appropriate punishment is death. But my son has agreed to take the punishment himself and has already gone to the gallows for you. So you, the accused, may go free. Case dismissed. That never happened. But for all believers, that is what is going to happen on the day of judgment. We will, of course, be guilty because we are not capable of living a blameless life. But Jesus has already taken the punishment for us so that we will live. The verdict is in. We have been pardoned. So from Joel we learn yet again, as earlier scripture made clear, there will be a day of judgment. Everyone will have to give account. And in many ways that's good news. Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin will give account for their heinous crimes. The people who have hurt you will be heard, held to account for their actions. So we don't need to judge others in this life. Our Lord will do that in due time. And it will be a terrible day. And it will especially be a terrible day for each of us if we stand before God and plead our case based on our own actions. If we try to stand based on our own moral behaviour, we will fall. Lord, I've been to church regularly. I've given to the poor. I've voted conservative. I'm a good person. I've never killed anyone. But however good we've been, it won't be enough. We'll only survive this terrible day of judgment if we stand in the blood of Jesus, if we trust in him now, here and now. It's through faith we are saved. So first then, there will be a day of judgment. And second, there will be an ultimate blessings for, there will be ultimate blessings for God's people. Verse 16, the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. That's us, by the way. Verse 18, in that day the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. It's the imagery of abundance, of prosperity, of God being present in our midst. And there are so many other similar references throughout the Old Testament of ultimate blessing. And Jesus often spoke about our glorious future with him in heaven. But perhaps the book of Revelation gives us the clearest picture, especially chapters 21, chapter 21 verses 1 to 4. And if I was in a position to set homework for you all today, I would encourage you to turn to your Bibles and read chapter 21 
of Revelation verses 1 to 4. It'll take one minute, but it will encourage you deeply about the glorious future that we all can look forward to. It's not a picture of us sitting on fluffy clouds playing harps. It's not us being whisked off somewhere, but a new heaven and a new earth being made for us to live on. In resurrected bodies, not floating around like ghosts, we will eat and dance and speak in heaven. It will be glorious in the presence of our Saviour. No more sickness, disease, misery or death or politics. It will be the way God always intended, us and him living in perfect harmony. And I need to ask you one simple question, dear friends. Do you believe this? Now, why is it important that we have a proper understanding of what the future holds for us? Because what we believe about the future helps to shape how we live today. Perhaps one great example was how the early Christians cared for the sick during plagues. When many others ran for the hills, they stayed and cared, demonstrating God's love in a practical and dangerous way. And I'd like to quote from a book called The Triumph of Christianity by sociologist and historian Rodney Stark, and I quote, What went on during the epidemics was only an intensification of what went on every day among Christians. Indeed, the impact of Christian mercy was so evident that in the 4th century, when the Emperor Julian attempted to restore paganism, he exhorted the pagan priesthood to compete with the Christian charities. In a letter to the high priest of Galatia, Julian urged the distribution of grain and wine to the poor, noting that the impious Galileans, that's the Christians, in addition to their own support ours, and it's shameful that our poor should be wanting our aid. But there was little or no response to Julian's proposals, because there were no doctrines and no traditional practices for the pagan priests to build upon. Christians believed in life ever, I'm still quoting, believed in life everlasting. At most, pagans believed in an unattractive existence in the underworld. Thus, for Galen, a renowned physician of the time, to have remained in Rome to treat the afflicted during the first great plague would have required far greater bravery than was needed by Christian deacons and presbyters to do so. Faith mattered. Unquote. So it seems clear that the early Christians were so confident of their place in eternity with God that they were willing to stay in the cities when plagues broke out and care for one another and also for the pagans who got sick and they were the only ones who did that because of their confidence in the future, because of their faith. And as a result, partly because of their extraordinary heroism, the gospel spread rapidly throughout the known world in these early centuries. So Joel knew there would be a day of judgment. He knew that God's people would ultimately be blessed. But thirdly and finally, what he didn't know and what we do know and what we are here to celebrate today is we know how God was going to do it. We know how God has done it. Now Joel refers to a valley of decision. We don't precisely know when the prophet Joel wrote these words, but my Thompson's reference Bible, which I've been reading for 30 years, suggests it might have been around 800 BC. So I'm going with that. 800 years after these words were penned, somebody did stand in the Valley of Decision. It was called Gethsemane. Jesus stood in the Valley of Decision and asked God to take away the ordeal that he knew he was going to face. Abandonment by his friends, kangaroo court, torture, an agonising death by crucifixion, and worst of all, 
the Father turning his face away while Jesus became sin for us. He knew his disciples would desert him. He predicted it. He asked them to stay awake with him while he wrestled with all this in Gethsemane, but they failed him. One of his disciples intentionally betrayed him for money. One of them denied him three times, despite having been warned. They all ran away, one of them so terrified, he left his robes behind and fled naked. And in the communion liturgy of most churches, we recite these words. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, do this in remembrance of me. On the night he was betrayed. Six words that, speaking personally, I've hardly ever thought about those six words. But on the night he was betrayed, he went through with the plan. On the night we turned our backs on him, he went to the cross for us. When we were at our worst, he was at his best. He went through with the plan. He asked God to take this cup away, but in the end said, not my will, but yours be done. After we abandoned him, who could have blamed him for saying, do you know what? They don't deserve it. Die for them, forget it. But he didn't do that. Because of his great love for us, even though we are deeply flawed, he went through with the plan. He was in the valley of decision and he chose us. So we should never doubt his love. When you mess up later on today or tomorrow, when you lie or exaggerate, or you're nasty to someone, or watch something you shouldn't on your phone, or make a huge mistake, please remember, when we were at our worst, he was at his best, and he still is. He's still loving us. He's still going through with the plan. And what is the plan? To take our punishment so that we can survive that terrible day of judgment. To prepare a new heaven and a new earth for all believers, where we will live with him in blessing and harmony for eternity. Joel signposted the way. We now know how it will be achieved through faith in Christ. Amen. Let's just pray before we sing our final song. Father God, Help us to believe this deeply. There will be a day of judgment, but Jesus has already taken the punishment for those who believe. There will be a glorious new heaven and earth prepared for us to live in with you for eternity. Lord, help us to believe it. We believe it in our heads. Lord, will you sink it down into our hearts today? And we know above all that it's only made possible because you, on the night you were betrayed, you went through with the plan. You chose us. You died for us. Help us to worship you today like we never have before. Amen.